You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Warning, this episode includes violence and adult language. I recently got my hands on an amazing recording. It's of our old family friend Jim Elliott giving a tour to some of his ranching friends around the places where he grew up cowboying on the Colorado-Wyoming border. Jim, you'll remember, is the cowboy that Judy fell in love with in episode one and who died a few years back of lung cancer. What blew my mind about this recording is that Jim's family lived the life of pioneers well into the 20th century. While other folks were installing running water and television, Jim was going to school in a cabin with dirt floors and spending his summers moving cattle high in the mountains where there were no roads or trails except the ones that his ancestors had cut through. As soon as I turn that recording on, I feel wistful hearing Jim's voice. And I remember what a great storyteller he always was. Like this funny one he tells about one of his neighbors growing up. His name was Guy, I can't remember the last name. But his ears were tremendous. And when you got in the wind and was talking to him, you couldn't help but giggle. Because he'd be carrying on a conversation serious as hell and his old ears would be going this. <laughs> Listening to Jim's stories, an incredible tale of adventure and resilience unfolds. But Jim's stories are also heavy, full of violence and regret. The real story of pioneers in the West is not all glory in sepia tones. The deeper I dig, the more I find hard truths and harm, but also a whole lot of hope. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West. Exploring the evolving identity of the American West, I'm Melody Edwards. That word, pioneer, it means brave. It means avant-garde. But I'm not sure that's the right word to describe the Europeans who fled the dangers and traumas of Europe and brought them raining down on a new land instead. Through that lens, it's really interesting to look at the Elliott family story. They don't even remember for sure when they came over from Europe, 
but family lore says it was on the Mayflower from England. Jim's great-grandfather, Daniel, had a restless spirit and ended up in Colorado after chasing a feral mare that escaped from his farm in Kansas. She'd been lured away by a herd of wild horses. That wanderlust, the constant searching, it was a common trait in early Americans, many of them fleeing war, hunger, disease. Plus, Kansas was going through a bad drought. Daniel loaded up the family and bought land outside Fort Collins near the tiny town of Livermore. And that ranch, that's where Jim's grandfather, John, grew up. They started a freighting business, delivering groceries and mail and other supplies by horse and wagon up into the mountain towns. Later, they became outfitters, too, leading packing trips of hunters into the mountains. When John grew up, he married a neighbor, Ida, and they had one child, Buck, Jim's dad. But there wasn't a reliable school nearby, so they hired a teacher, Josephine Lamb, to live with them and to teach Buck reading, writing, and arithmetic. Jim didn't have fond memories of his grandfather, John. FYI, the audio's a little hard to hear. Did you know your grandfather well, or I mean, how? I knew him as well as I want to know him. <laughs> so I... Enough to remember some of the things that went on. And those things that went on that he remembers were how his grandfather lived with the teacher, Josephine, as his lover, and how his grandmother moved into a room of her own, and how they lived in that house as a triangle for years. Josephine bought land next door, and Jim's grandpa started teaching her how to cowboy. They spent all day every day together, moving cattle to and from the best mountain pastures. That was his mistress. And he treated my grandma like hell, but I remember going to the place there and if she was there, why well, he'd eat, the dogs would eat, and grandma could eat. Josephine was a liberated woman who found a way to escape a traditional life of motherhood and servitude. Yet her independence was directly at the expense of John's wife, Ida. It sounds so weird to us now. We think of those early pioneers as pious and conservative. But these were people living tough, lonely, dangerous lives. And often it led to cruelty and pain at home. Jim's stories are an unvarnished look at life on the edge of the wilderness. Like when Jim's mom, Helen, was seven months pregnant with Jim's brother, an enormous forest fire raged past. It was all hands on deck, and Jim's dad, Buck, went out to fight it. And that's why my mom had my little brother, John, early because she was seven months along with John and the fire broke out. She was cooking for 300 men. My dad's name was Buck and there was also a Buck, another Buck in there. And a guy come riding out was hollering, Buck's dead, Buck's dead. And it did kill, it did kill that guy, but it wasn't my dad. And at the time, mom didn't know it. She went right into labor and had John at seven.
but it's Jim's stories of going to school that paint a picture of just how much the Elliots were still living the frontier lifestyle, even in the early 40s. His first school was an old cabin, and Jim remembers the floor piled with magazines to cover up the dirt. He points out the ruins of it on their tour. First school I ever went to, right? Here. Oh wow! And that's one that had the magazine floor. Floor? Yeah. It'd be uh-huh. cool to see with it. And then we quit that school, and there's a Glen Eyre school down here, and it was 12 miles exact from the house to the school down here. And come bad winter, mom would take us down there, suitcases and leave us. Hmm. Maybe I'll come back next week and get you. And then the old teacher down there had a single shot 22, and I loved her. Because we'd go out and do the schoolwork, and then she'd let us go out and we'd shoot jackrabbits for supper. Yeah. <laughs> and where did you stay for that week? Here at school with the teacher. Oh, at the school? I oh, lived wow. with the teacher. Oh, wow. Mrs. Burgess. I remember her name because she was big, ugly, and mean, but she had a good side to her. And one time, uh, Mom said she was going to leave us here. And of course, little brat, you know, he didn't want to stay with the teacher. And she was standing in the doorway, and the door was wide open. Of course, she had a dress on, and she's standing there all sprattle legged. And I could see that light between her legs, and man, I dove for that hole, and I took off. (laughs) (laughs) Then, when he got older, Jim didn't go to school at all. Instead, he spent most of his time living in cow camps high up in the mountains. His grandfather and dad had built the trails in themselves, cutting a line of what they considered civilization into the wilderness. But it was a dangerous life. Jim tells this one story about his dad trying to break a colt while gathering cows in the autumn. Just a warning, it's a pretty brutal tale. The old horse bucked the old man off. But them old Hamley saddles that had them swells on them, like that thing I got sitting in the house, he got his foot hung in the rope and then it tied him in. His foot was up against that swell and he couldn't get loose. And Dad always carried a revolver. And uh, he was dragging with that old horse. He was dragging. And Johnny and I went to catch him. The more we went to catch him, the faster that horse started going. Well, we had sense enough to pull up, and wasn't just a few minutes heard a boom. And Dad had got his gun out and killed that horse. And when the horse come over, he just assholed. And Dad was laying underneath the horse. Well, when we finally got that horse pulled off of Dad, he didn't have a stitch of clothing on, and he didn't have much hide left. Buck was in such terrible condition, they couldn't even put him on a horse and ride out. So they made a sled by crisscrossing their ropes, put him on that, and drug him out. They were 12 miles into the backcountry. And he was a good year and a half growing his hide back. And they didn't have none of that plastic stuff anymore. You know, he had to grow it back. But uh, throughout that time, you know, he was bleeding so bad and everything, and we couldn't stop it because it was superficial bleeding. And the flies had blowed him so bad, mm-hmm. and he was just full of eggs and maggots. It was hotter than hell. And that old doctor told Mom that was the best thing that ever happened. 
was them maggots getting in there and starting to chew on that because they were stopping the bleeding. Oh, mm. oh. Oh. <laughs> Jim's stories are just full of this stuff. While city folks in Denver got the best medicine only 150 miles away, the Elliots took pride in living in a bygone era. Their days full of guns, death, and hard winters. On more than one occasion, Jim finds someone dead from exposure or suicide. One time, he accidentally shoots his brother in the leg. These stories truly satisfy all our visions of the cowboy myth. While moviegoers watched John Wayne on the big screen, Jim was living it. But when you listen really closely, you start to hear a kind of pride behind the horror. Survivor's pride. The more of these stories you have on your belt, the better. He relishes in the telling. It's something you notice reading lots of pioneer memoirs. The attitude behind them seems to be, it was our job to bring civilization to the Wild West, but the Wild was a bloodthirsty foe, and only the toughest lived to tell the tale. But there's one thing Jim doesn't relish, how the government ultimately tamed the Wild for them. On the tour, they stop and get out to take in the view. Mountains that his grandpa and Josephine once roamed without fences or signs or leases. Now, as far as the eye can see, it's federal public lands. So you can still ride back up in this country if well, you have horses? Uh, yeah, if they don't let us, we'll just eliminate them. We'll go anywhere. <laughs> this, as far as I'm concerned, this is our country. Brains and mine and all us old cowboys, this is our country. In Jim's narrative, the descendants of pioneers are victims, their freedoms suppressed. But a while later, there's an odd contradiction to this. Jim and the group are talking about the history of Native Americans in the area. And there it is again, that fear of being driven away. Jim's friend tells a story about the Utes coming to North Park, slaughtering game to leave it lay, and setting fire to the forest as a way to drive the white man out. But Jim disagrees. Well, I get to wonder myself today, you talk about the Native Americans. I think our country would have been in a lot better shape if the Native Americans would have went ahead and run it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they'd taken a lot better yeah, talk, care of the land. I was going to say, talk about environmentalists. Well, they yeah. used everything there was. And everything had a meaning. Mm -hmm. You heard that right. As a group, they agree. Native Americans might have done a better job taking care of the land than pioneers. Underneath the cowboy bravado, there's regret, but there's also resentment. As they drive along, Jim and the other cowboys in the truck lament how few cows they see. There's no more cattle in here now. I think it's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a shame. A lot of forage goes to waste. Yeah. A lot of forage gone to waste. It's an idea that might be hard for a lot of non-ranchers to wrap their heads around. But it's like having an apple tree in your backyard. You pick all the apples that you can reach, but there's a lot way up high that you can't get to. A waste of apples, and you have to just watch them rot on the branch. It breaks your heart, especially if you've ever lived with hunger or poverty like most pioneers had. 
That's the mentality of ranchers towards the rich, thick grasses of the high alpine going ungrazed because of government rules. That's a lot of beef they could have raised and butchered and stocked away for the hard times. When we return, a literary historian helps us understand this deep attachment those early pioneers had for cows. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. Listening to Jim's pioneer family story. It might reinforce all your highfalutin ideas of the cowboy as the underdog, as the first settler to this land and therefore its rightful caretaker. But even Jim and his friends express regret about that story. So is it all that accurate? This history seems dotted with blind spots I need to shed light on. Sometimes the best place to start is with the obvious, like, hold your horses here, with cows. I mean, That's why Jim's great-grandfather came to Colorado in the first place, to raise cattle, right? And that's what breaks Jim's heart the most is seeing the mountains devoid of cattle. So I reach out to Catherine Dolan, a historian who wrote a book called Cattle Country, about how people thought and wrote about cows in American literature. She traces back our totally wacky relationship to this animal. Because cows and humans... We've been walking the evolutionary path and lockstep for quite a while. Since the Neolithic period, in fact, going back over 10,000 years, back to India and Iraq. And definitely there's something about, it's got to be a size, the way that we've domesticated them over so, so long. So, you know, we have this connection with them. We've made them very peaceable and willing to work with us, you know, and all these kinds of things. And they have tied their carts to us as well. So we've made them one of the most successful species in the world in terms of sheer numbers and everything, you know, so because they're so connected with humans. Catherine has a great sense of humor about our obsession with cows. In our Zoom call, she has a boisterous laugh and waist-length blonde hair that she yanks at in exasperation sometimes. Because let's face it, there's a lot of weirdness in the human-cow dynamic. For instance, in the journals of Lewis and Clark, She notices how they associate the presence of cows with civilization. It was one of the first things William Clark noticed on his return after years in the so-called wilderness. William Clark writes on September 20, 1806. So they're returning. They've gotten back almost all the way to St. Louis. And um, they said, we saw some cows on the bank, which was a joyful sight for the party and caused a shout to be raised for joy. The return to cows was a return to civilization. Again, the way that the iconography happens with cattle in our minds is not purely natural because as Lewis and Clark is traveling, they see bison, but they never, they don't make the connection to cattle. They don't say, clearly this is like cattle. Clearly this could be cattle ranches could happen here or something. Catherine says, even though Lewis and Clark witnessed Native Americans relying on bison in a similar way to Europeans with cows, they didn't recognize that parallel. Only the domesticated cow could equal civilization. Mm. 
Catherine noticed a visual depiction of this belief in the famous painting called American Progress. You probably know the one. Covered wagons and trains and farmers all escorted westward by this giant blonde lady wearing wispy white robes. Down in the bottom right, which is kind of visually closest to the viewer, you get this scene of, of oxen plowing a, a, you know, a new farm. And um, so you get cattle, you get cattle front and center. And it's interesting, so pride of place almost in a way, right? Uh, that's the future, that's the part that's connected to civilization. And then you get this visual, actual, it, you know, there's a mo- movement happening across the canvas where the bison and even the native peoples that are trying to hunt the bison are being run off the canvas by these encroaching pieces of Western civilization. Uh, one very prominent piece of which being these oxen. So. Also getting run off the canvas by oxen, wolves and elk. But this wasn't just a metaphor. In the autobiography of Paiute author Sarah Wimanuka in the 1870s, she doesn't mince words. The game has all been killed except for a few rabbits. The pine trees have all been destroyed so that we can get no more nuts. The cattle have trampled out the grass in our little valleys and we can dig no more roots. If the white people leave us to go over the mountains to California, as some people tell us, we must go over the mountains with them too, or else starve. If we cannot get wild game, we must take game, like cows or steers, the same as the white people would do if they had nothing to eat and nothing to feed their wives and little ones with. And she absolutely makes the connection that the reservations, the reason that they're getting shoved under reservations is because the Americans coming across want that land for cattle. So the cattle is the problem, and then the cattle cause a problem because then they can't harvest because the cattle will eat all the foods that like if they wanted to get roots and stuff, they couldn't get them because the cattle had gone through and eaten everything. And then Winnemucca even goes so far as to compare the treatment of the Paiutes to treatment of cattle, um, although maybe even worse, but because they're being herded into a reservation kind of, and, and she'll use words like, you know, we're being treated like cattle or being treated like livestock, you know, so. Catherine says doing her research, she just couldn't understand why Europeans insisted on cows when they were so ill-suited to the landscapes of the American West. Beef requires so much, so much land. You know, they need so much grass. And, and as we've learned, you really shouldn't feed beef, other beef. <laughs> things like that. You know, that's not, not what their stomachs are designed for. Um, they need grass. And so then we have to create so much grass. And if only we could be a culture that really loved pork or something, which, and we do, (laughs) but, you know, pigs are much, much easier to, you know, grow in in different conditions and you could have done it differently and it wouldn't have necessarily been so dominating of land. But by then, there was no turning back. Colonizers felt it was their manifest destiny to bring civilization to the West in the form of cattle. And American ambitions were boundless. Railroad Refrigerated cars becoming come into being. All these technologies happen over the course of the mid nineteenth century that make it so that it's possible for stuff to happen quicker and still stay fresh and still stay in an edible condition to different places. So it it becomes kind of a feedback loop. So the farms get bigger and are able to be handled with fewer people and more productive, if you will. The most expensive and elite food on any high end restaurant menu 
is always a prime cut of beef. So making it available to everyone was just the democratic thing to do, early Americans felt. Cows have always been around the world, but now everyone wants their beef as much as we have beef all around the world. And that's just not going to work. <laughs> it's just becoming so streamlined and so kind of assembly lined, mechanized. Here's how we cut up the beef and here's how we remove it. And, and the way that the train conglomerates, the train monopolies owned the land that grew the wheat. And so the farm, you know, they could decide how much the farmers were paid for the wheat that would be used to feed the cows, that would be used to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And nothing could get in the way of these grand ambitions. Not even one of the largest herds of migrating animals the earth had ever seen, the American bison. There were over 60 million bison roaming the continent before European settlers arrived. If those were people, that'd be as many as the country of Italy has now. There's stories of a herd of over 4 million bison traveling hundreds of miles from winter to summer ranges. It took weeks for them to pass. Weeks! Jim Elliott's great-grandpa might have seen such a sight, chasing that feral mare in Colorado. That's part of the pioneer story, too, but it's another blind spot. So is the extinction of the mountain bison, a subspecies that archaeologists have documented living in the highest country of my home valley of North Park. I often feel their ghosts hiking in my mountains. Who knows, maybe Jim's dad, Buck, came across the bones of the very last one. Somehow, the extermination of bison has been severed from the pioneer story in the history books. But I happen to know someone who has some thoughts about why. Hi, Jason. Hello, how are you doing? Good. Sorry, That's we're... Jason Baldes, a member of the Eastern Shoshone tribe. He's also the buffalo representative for his tribe and the bison coordinator for the National Wildlife Federation. He's at the forefront of a movement in Indian country to bring back the wild bison. My photographer Anna and I visit him at his home on the Wind River Reservation in central Wyoming. From here, he has a view of the herd of genetically pure wild bison that he's been growing for the last several years. I happen to be the reporter who covered the release of the first 10 animals of this herd, one of those experiences I count among my most precious. We climb into Jason's ATV. Luckily, it's enclosed because it's one hell of a windy day. He drives us out into the prairie and off a steep ridge, down right into the middle of the herd. While we talk, right outside our window, the bison wallow and romp and lock horns, fascinated by us for a while, before wandering off to graze. Jason starts telling us a story that precedes Jim's pioneer story by thousands of years. You know, our people, Shoshone people, have been here for time immemorial. You know, I hear a conversation about 30,000 years. Our language comes from the south. You know, it's referred to as the Uto-Aztecan dialect. Except we, we distinguished ourselves by the foods we ate. And the eastern band of Shoshones was known as the buffalo eaters. But Jason explains that for his tribe, bison weren't just food. 
Well, it's like, kind of like uh, what would happen now if we remove the dollar from everybody's pocket. What would they do? Because Buffalo was everything. It was life's commissary to our grandmas and grandpas. It was food, it was clothing, it was shelter. It was our economy. And that's the reason why it was exterminated, was so that our lands could be acquired. And that extermination process was very intentionally used as a tool of warfare. One army colonel was quoted telling a regretful hunter who killed 30 bulls, Kill every buffalo you can. Every buffalo dead is an Indian gone. This was during the Plains Indian Wars, and the U.S. Army wasn't faring so well against the well-organized and passionate fighting of the tribes. The U.S. Army saw that bison was the basis of the tribal economy and intentionally targeted the enormous herds. Between 1872 and 1874, the Army launched a campaign and killed 5.4 million bison in just that three-year span alone. There's stories about, you know, only hides and tongues were taken. Hides, obviously, were important in the making belts for the Industrial Revolution that was ramping up in the early 1900s. The tongues were a delicacy, and the rest was left to rot on the plains, and the plains looked like winter because of the number of bones that littered the prairie. So they collected those bones and put them on trains, and they were shipped back east and made into fertilizer in fine China. By 1884, there were only 325 bison left, from 60 million to 325 in only a few years. And once the bison and the Native American were removed, lots of land was left open for cattle. Jason says this land must have seemed so healthy when settlers arrived, but that was until cattle came. He says there's a big difference between the way cattle and bison live on the arid western landscape. With cattle, you have a decrease in plant and animal biodiversity. They haven't adapted on these lands or this, these, this landscape or this continent, really, for the, the thousands of years that bison have. Bison have some unique characteristics that uh, mesh really well. And, and things like um, their hooves are structured such that they naturally aerate the soil when they walk. A cow's hoof is, is flat. A buffalo is primarily a graminoid feeder, so they eat the grasses and leave the forbs, which is where you get cultural plants and you get your biodiversity. Uh, buffalo has seven times the hair per square inch as a cow, and so then that allows them to be much more comfortable in cold climates. They don't freeze to death. Jason says bison don't congregate next to water. They get a drink and move on, unlike cattle. And when they roll in the dirt, they create depressions where water pools and seeds can sprout. He says even their fur is valuable on this landscape. And did in the wintertime like this, do they, does their fur get like oh, yeah. thicker? And, yeah, you can watch uh-huh. it get thicker mm-hmm. as, this, as this cold comes on and then in the springtime they lose it all and so that's you can see how important it is for critters yeah underground above ground we've seen ospreys flying with big old pieces of buffalo hair 
Some birds need buffalo hair for their eggs to reach the right incubation really? temperature. And they and you can't had... get and you can't get that with cows. You know, so they don't another, have that same fur. No, they don't have the same fur. And seven times the hair per square inch. So you know, just think of actually, I've got a really nice piece right here mm -hmm. that I collected the other day. Get an idea of, of as it comes oh off. Oh my gosh! Wow, yeah, that's so, a lot. So it's the best insulation yeah. material for you know. I mean, it feels like wool or something. Oh, yeah. or, or but even like fluffier, like it holds more. Yeah. And so they have three layers of hair. So the under layer is really, really soft. Mm -hmm. Then they have a, a middle layer and then the outer guard hair. Jason says bison offered so many gifts to this landscape. But now, he says, the land is in bad shape from generations of cattle ranching. His dream is to bring back wild bison to the Wind River Reservation and across the West. And not the bison that's been crossbred with cattle, but the pure wild bison that still exists in tiny numbers from before colonization. You know, I see no better mechanism than buffalo for improving the, the health of our landscapes. We, we've forgotten, because none of us were around, to see the ecological influence of buffalo on this landscape. It could be in 20 or 30 or 50 years, this looks much different. That there is a wider range of plant species, that there's more birds, more insects, more mammals, just from the presence of, of these animals over time. And yet Jason recognizes that the myth of the cowboy, this deep attachment to all things cow, it's in the way of making his dream a reality. Jason even refused to attend the University of Wyoming, whose current motto is, the world needs more cowboys, and whose logo includes a bucking horse and rider. He intentionally went to colleges outside Wyoming instead. I went to every school around the state so that I wouldn't have to go to the University of Wyoming to wear a cowboy emblem. <laughs> I actually went to you know, Black Hill State University, Colorado State University, Montana State University, avoiding University of Wyoming so I wouldn't have to wear that, wear that cowboy logo. Everything about the cowboy represents what we're trying to fight here. Use of the water and how it's prioritized change in agriculture from you know using or wa using our water to to irrigate high water use crops like sugar beet and alfalfa in a high elevation desert the idea of private land ownership separated us from our connection to this river system the state managing and prioritizing agriculture over wildlife is the epitome of of what we're trying to to to, to challenge it's as though we don't exist. All of his career, Jason has been working to bring this animal back to these lands. And before him, Jason's father, Dick Baldes, worked as the tribal wildlife biologist doing the same. It's a multi-generational effort that's growing across Indian country. Jason sits on the Intertribal Buffalo Council, 69 tribes working to return bison to their original territory. Not as cattle, but as wildlife. Now, we are sitting among this herd that's grown to 65 animals, with another 12 calves due to be born this spring. Jason talks about this work as rematriation, a global feminist indigenous movement to return balance to the world. 
it's a twist on the word repatriation. That's when someone comes back to their country of origin. So by using a feminine version of the word, the meaning is altered to a return to Mother Earth. Seeing them eventually restored to the landscape to exist for their intrinsic value so that you know, the areas like the Red Desert or the American Prairie Reserve or others where we, f where we still have some places left that haven't been plowed up, paved over, fenced in or fenced out or all the predators removed, that there's still some places that contain that silly notion of wild because none of it was wild to us. It was the way it was. It was the way it was supposed to be. This idea of rematriation, strangely enough, it reminds me of Jim Elliott and his cowboy friends standing on that ridge looking out at North Park and wishing Native Americans could still be taking care of this land they love. Because for the tribes, Jim said, everything had a use and a meaning. I could hear in Jim's voice a yearning to return this land to its natural state, to rematriate. We hear so much about all the discord in our country, but down deep, I wonder if there aren't shared values. Maybe they're just buried under all our blind loyalties to old myths. Jason says the Eastern Shoshone have now harvested four bison. He pulled the trigger on the first animal, and he says he doesn't care if he ever does that again. That was the hardest thing to do. Is to, because I worked so hard to get mm -hmm. these animals here. You know, of course, after the animal's down, you know, it's great, you know, to, to be able to process the animal and do it in, uh, in a meaningful way and use all the animal. But to, to, to kill it, that's, that's a very hard thing to do. I don't, I don't really want to do that again. You, you want it to be a one-shot, one-kill. The other, I try to do it when the other animals aren't nearby, because they have a they have a mourning process. When when they, one of them goes down, they they all are very upset about about that. They try to get the animal up, and, and then when they realize it's gone, they they mourn that that loss. And Violence and cruelty is deeply interwoven into the history of the American West. But I wonder if we can learn a thing or two from the ways of bison. Just as they mourn each other, could we heal from all we've lost by looking long and hard at our history without flinching? Let go of some of those old ambitions to industrialize cows. Like Jason says, maybe it's time to scale down and recognize the intrinsic value of this place that we all call home. The way that cows represent the oppression, buffalo represent the opposite. You know, it's like a, we're, we're undoing a little bit of manifest destiny. Next time on The Modern West, after pioneers settle down with their herds of cattle, we see the impacts start to spread across our dry, fragile landscapes. In the West, most ranchers run what they call cow-calf operations, and one of the first places calves graze after they're born is on public lands. We take a trip out to the Red Desert of Wyoming 
one of the last vestiges of high-elevation deserts left in the U.S., to see how grazing is affecting things there. Well, the Red Desert could be a national park for its sagebrush ecosystem values, and it has spectacular landscapes, too, in some areas. It's a, it's a national treasure, but the federal government doesn't treat it like one. What's your pioneer story, and how does your family work to heal some of the pain of that history? Share your stories with us on social media at Modern West Pod. I'm Melody Edwards. Tennessee Watson is our story editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Noah Greenspan is assistant producer. Anna Rader is marketing coordinator. Thanks also for help from Sarah Ann Leverett and Diane Berner. History reenactment by Signa McAdams and Jojo Edwards. And thanks to Jamie Shallot and Lynette Telk for sharing Jim Elliott's audio. To see Anna Castro's original photography for this season, go to our website at themodernwest.org. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. This podcast was produced on the University of Wyoming campus that occupies the ancestral and traditional lands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Crow, and Shoshone indigenous peoples, along with other native tribes who call the Great Basin and Rocky Mountain region home. We recognize, support, and advocate alongside indigenous individuals and communities who live here now and with those forcibly removed from their homelands. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.